Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. On Headstrong, we are very pleased and proud to be partnered with the CBD brand, The Good Level. Now, I've been taking CBD for about 18 months to maintain my mental well-being, but it's been very difficult to find a brand that I can trust because there's so many faceless foreign brands out there and you're not sure what you're buying or how it's sourced. Luckily, I found two guys, Joe and Johnny, who have created this wonderful brand called The Good Level. What's so great about these guys is that they support British farming. Many brands import their CBD from America, But the good levels say they don't rely on the methods by farmers that they've never met, nor the farms that they've never seen. They have a really close relationship with their farmers who are in Somerset, meaning they know how their product is produced from start to finish. They're the first CBD company I found who put a face on the brand and they're transparent with the whole process of how they create their products. And they've even got their own podcast where they look at the latest research on CBD. To check them out, go to their Instagram at the.good.level and drop them a message if you want to find out more about CBD. And for 15% off their products, use Headstrong15 on their website for checkout. Hello and welcome to what is the season six series finale of Headstrong. My name is Louis Strong and I am the host of this podcast. Now Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a number of people in the public eye to talk to them about their lives and their careers but notably I want to talk to them about their vulnerabilities and what the word Headstrong means to them. I do this because I want to inspire you the listener to be Headstrong yourself. Now, joining me on this episode of Headstrong is someone who is probably seen as a bit of an icon, particularly here in the UK after lockdown. We all became addicted to Tiger King. And today's guest is Carol Baskin. On this episode of Headstrong, Carol and I sat down to talk about the early abuse she received in early relationships, including cheating, sex and scandal, 
the first tiger that she ever saw in her life, which is in fact the first time that she's ever been asked that, and the banning of private ownership of cats in the United States and elsewhere. We, of course, talked about her experiences of Tiger King, how she was portrayed, and her mental resilience to come back and bounce back from those experiences on Tiger King. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. It's pretty fantastic, even if I say so myself. Carol Baskin, hello, how are you? Thank you for joining me on Headstrong. (laughs) You know you cool cats and kittens on Headstrong. Man, this is a (laughs) podcast that was named for my personality. Yeah, it's brilliant to have you on. Before we get into the nitty gritty of our conversation, I've started uh, this series with an initiative with every guest, uh, introduced by one of my first guests on this series, where I'm checking in with them. Uh, So I want to check in with you, see how you're doing at this present moment in time. I think every day is a gift. I actually was uh, mis- no, not really even misdiagnosed. I misunderstood the doctor years ago and thought that I had been diagnosed with cancer. And so I lived my life every day for two years thinking I was wrapping things up and finally discovered that I was not dying from cancer. And what that did during that period of time was it really gave me an appreciation of every single day. That's, a, that's very true. I agree as well. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty of Tiger King and Big Cat Rescue, we need to understand a little bit of context. And I want to talk about you growing up and you as a, as a young girl and as a child. Is it fair to say that you had a rather turbulent childhood? Because you never really settled, did you? Uh, and you moved around a lot. Yeah, we did move a lot. So I didn't build up strong friendships with people because we moved like every year. (laughs) Um, But I did build a a very close affinity to my cats who came with us. So I had that kind of a a closeness in my life. As far as being turbulent, I mean, I was raised in a fundamentally Christian family. So they had strong Christian values and there was not like drug use or alcoholism or any of the horrible things that so many people have had to survive. I was very, very fortunate in that respect. And we, my father was an entrepreneurial type and my mother was the rock solid person that always had the same job or same type of job. And through my early years, I was able to be in private schools. But then when my father lost one of his businesses, I had to go into public school. And so that was a real um, shake up for me because I had never been around children who cursed and swore and stole and were, you know, just like a bunch of animals. <laughs> so, um, it was a real shocker for me to live the life that probably most people grow up thinking is perfectly normal. Did you find it challenging then? You said they're challenging to make friends as well, because you were constantly on the move. So did you find education as a whole quite challenging? No, I, <laughs> I've always been really good at book learning and especially at testing. And because I am so headstrong, I can remember being in the third grade and my teacher telling me that I had homework to do. And I told him that when I'm in school, I'm here and I'll give you everything I've got. But when I go home, that's my time and I'm not doing homework. (laughs) And I never turned in a day's worth of homework after that. And you can imagine that did not make me popular with the teachers, but every time they would test me on anything, I test so high that I was an A and B student throughout all of um, my grade school and junior high school. So 
And I, I just pick things up really easily. It's it, that <laughs> that part of my life has never been a challenge. That's always good. No, I, I agree with that. I think being able to test well is a really, really, really good skill. Now, I'm curious to ask you, though, because you did leave high school before it officially finished, didn't you? So what, yeah, was, your, what was your kind of reasoning uh, and uh, choice behind that? There were two things going on in my life. One was my mother and I were like best friends. She was everybody's favorite mom. She was always the one throwing all the cool parties at our house. She let us start up a band in the house. And so we were loud and raucous. And she was just all about making that possible for me. And everybody just loved her. And she was my best friend. We had never had a fight until I was 15 years old. And the first time we had a fight, it was her thinking that I was having sex with a boy. And I was so outraged that she would think that, not because of her thinking that about me, but because he was such a nice guy. And I was having sex with other boys, but not with him. And so I was just (laughs) outraged that she would say that about him. And we got into our first fight. And she said, when I get home, I don't want to see your face. Well, I thought she meant ever. And I had already been arguing with my father because I wanted to leave school and start going to work because we were suffering financially. We were living in a trailer park. I could see things were tough for the family and I wanted to help. And he was not about to let me quit school and go to work. And so there was that kind of strife. And I thought, well, you know, she doesn't want me here, then I'll just leave. And so it happened that a boy I had met in Tampa had gone to join the army and had gone AWOL from the army. He calls me up that exact same day and says, hey, I'm passing through town. And I said, well, it's a good thing because I need to be out of here. So I packed up two garbage sacks with my clothes and left home with him. And I didn't call my parents for months. They didn't know where I was because I didn't think they wanted to hear from me. And it wasn't until I got into an auto accident and was paralyzed that my boyfriend's family had taken me in. And I don't to this day know how my mother's father, my grandfather found me, but he found, he showed up at the door of their house one day and he took me to a chiropractor and got me back on my feet. And that, at that point he was like, your parents have been losing their minds looking for you. And it turns out they had an all points bulletin out for me in five different States. And, you know, being a stupid kid, I had no idea what I was putting my parents through. I would, I would just go crazy if that were my daughter doing mm. that, but when you're 15, you're stupid, or at least I was. And so we've had a wonderful relationship ever since then. I was going to say, as you said there, as a kid, you, you don't really necessarily think about the, your actions and repercussions of what the other people are feeling at the time. You're like, right, I'm going, it's my decision, and that's what's happening. And lo and behold, at least at least you were found, I suppose. So what happened thereafter then? Because you, that, was that a different boyfriend to your first husband? Yes. Um, Well, it depends on who you count as husbands and who you don't. Mm. (laughs) I was talking to my mother the other day about what her plans were when she passes. And she said that because my father was in the military, that what they do is they bury the spouse further, deeper down. And then when the the surviving spouse dies, they plant them right on top. And I said, well, they're going to have to start pretty deep in my case Mm. (laughs) if we're all going in the same hole. But um, to answer your question, that guy was named Jim Jones, and we never got married as far as like a marriage certificate, but we exchanged rings. We called each other husband and wife. I took his last name of Jones. So in my view, he was my first husband. 
But most people don't refer to a husband unless there's been a legal marriage. You know, at that time I was in West Virginia and West Virginia, they have what they call common law marriage. And maybe that's other states too, but it's like, if you live together, you just call yourselves married and you're married. So I had Jim Jones. And then um, when I broke up with him, I ran into Jamie's, my daughter's father, Mike Murdoch, who most people think of as my first husband. And then Don Lewis being my third. And then my husband, currently Howard Baskin, says, I don't want to be, this was in our vows. He said, I don't want to be called your latest husband. I want to be called your last husband. (laughs) So he's my last husband. Yeah, fair enough. There's a good vow to me, to be honest. (laughs) Um, Okay. Because that, the first official marriage then with Michael Murdoch, uh, you were were very young when you were officially married, weren't you? 19, 20? 17. 17. 17. Uh, do you need your parents' permission at 17 yeah. in the States? Yes. And with your parents being deeply Christian, were they happy with that decision? They were not. And this was a product of my mother having gone to high or gone to college and studying psychology. And she will tell you to this day, she had just enough psychological training to make a huge mess because she figured that if she pressured me to marry this man, who she knew I didn't want to be married to, that I would leave him and not be living with him in sin. And so that was her intent behind pressuring me to marry him. And my thought was, you know, here I put them through all this suffering when I left home. They never ask anything of me. They want me to marry this guy, then I'll marry this guy. And so I did. And I was absolutely miserable with him. He was horribly abusive, which my mother didn't know because I didn't share that with her but he was physically abusive. And eight years into it, when I told my mother that I wanted a divorce, she was like, I can't believe it took you eight years. Because <laughs> she never wanted that man in our lives. But she, you know, when she went through with the wedding with me, she wasn't going to say, you know, because she was saying, well, maybe she must want to be married to him. So it was just a matter of not communicating well. Yeah, sure. Eight years, though, gosh, of, of unhappiness. Oh, it was horrible. Oh my word! And how, if you don't mind me asking, how did you cope with the uh, the physical abuse in that side of things? Because you know, I can't imagine going through that on your own and not being able to talk about it is very, I don't know, restraining um, mentally as well. You know. Yeah, and in his case, I mean, I had been in abusive relationships, so that wasn't new to me. But in his case. He was smart enough to know, and my parents did a lot to support us. They gave us a a furniture business that we ran. I would, I don't know if you had this stuff over where you live, but in some of the stores, there is like entertainment centers and bookcases and stuff that you can make yourself. They come in a box and then you make them. And most people can never make those things themselves. They always want somebody to build it for them. So they gave me a business where I drove around in a big truck and I would set up on street corners and put the furniture out with big signs on it already assembled and people could just buy it assembled and then I'd deliver it to their house. And so they had done that for us and my husband was a mechanic. So it really helped with our income. So he recognized the fact that he was living much higher off the hog, we would say here, than he would be on his own. And as a result, he didn't want them to know what was happening to me. And so when he would do things, he wouldn't like punch me in the eye. Instead, he'd like twist my arm up behind my back until I felt like it was going to come out of its socket. Doing things like that where you couldn't see the result of it um, physically on me so that people would know what was going on. 
And I'd been raised in a family where once you got married, you were married for life. And that was just it. You did not divorce. And if, and, you know, my father was a very loud <laughs> person and my mother always covered for him and she would, he was never physically abusive to her, but I think he was emotionally abusive. And I grew up thinking that that's normal and that's the way people are. And so I just, I didn't feel like there was any, that I should be sharing any of those private things that were happening in our relationship with my family. And since I didn't have friends, there was nobody else to share it with either. So that went um, untold for all of those years until I just couldn't take it anymore. And I, I was at a cat show and I told him on the way back from the cat show, I was driving in a couple hours away. And I said, when I get home, do not be there. <laughs> Just be out of this house. I am done with this. He was cheating on me. And I found out about it at the cat show from one of the people that he was cheating with. And so he moved out. And thankfully, a couple of years later, we were finally divorced. But um, I forget the <laughs> Don't worry. No, no, no. <laughs> very, no, no. It's very interesting. Absolutely. You said there that he was um, unfaithful to you in the marriage. But you, am I correct in saying that you met Don whilst you were still married to to Michael? Yeah, we were both unfaithful. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and you know, I had said that other people were physically abusive to me as well, and I think that that came as a result of having been raped when I was fourteen, and that just completely destroyed my self-esteem. I didn't think I was worthy because in my religion, you know, if a woman gets raped, it's her fault. And I felt like I was now damaged merchandise. I could never attract a good man as a husband. And so I had very low expectations in my relationships. But uh, when Don came along, he was just, he treated me like I was an absolute queen. And I later found out that he had a lot of women in his life. I think in Tiger King, his wife said he had 24 girlfriends. I'm like, 24. I knew about some of them. I did not know he had 24 girlfriends, but who has even time for all of that? But if you talk to every single one of them, they'll say, he made me feel like I was the only woman in the world. And it's like, yeah, he could do that. He was just, he was charismatic and made you feel like you were just the most amazing person, the only person in his life. So he was a totally different type of manipulator than what I had been accustomed to. I never, he never physically harmed me or did anything physical like what I had been through before. So to me, he was a godsend. Yeah, absolutely. You, you've had a couple, of, you know, we've, we've talked about boyfriends and husbands and your childhood as well. Do you think you are seeking validation from other people or seeking, um, happiness through other people because have you always been with somebody have you ever been spent a time where you've been single and, and felt liberated actually I did um and that was after Don disappeared I was single for gosh he disappeared in 1997 and Howie and I got married well we actually met in 2001 November of 2000 no, 2002, November of 2002. So those few years, I was single for the first time in my life and loved it. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. It was, you know, it was difficult at first because I'd always been with somebody. Mm. And, you know, I think what you're asking is, was that, did I seek validation from those relationships? Mm. And I think what I felt mostly was um, 
a fear of dealing with a world I didn't understand because I had been so sheltered as a child. It just, it rocked my world when somebody raped me. I just couldn't believe that people could be that cruel. And one of them had tried to kill me. And it was one of the other, there was three men and one of them stopped the other two from cutting my throat. They actually cut my throat, but they didn't kill me. And I couldn't believe that people behave that way. I mean, we weren't allowed to watch those kind of television shows either. Even there weren't video games or things like Grand Theft Auto and all the stuff that kids are raised on today. It was just a total shock to me that people were like that. And so when I took up with people and stayed with them, my my feeling at the deepest core was I'm better off with this devil than the devils I don't know. And, you know, maybe I can survive this situation, but I don't know if I could survive dealing with all of the people out there that could be even worse. And so by the time I ended up with Don, I I had always been in that same kind of pattern. I can't imagine, uh, you know, it's an unimaginable experience that you had to go through and and experience. What do you... I mean, I, I, are you happy for me to talk about that briefly? Sure. Because I think it's it's important to hear it from somebody who has gone through it, but has now made a success of what they do and of their life. But is it something that you carry around every day? Um, is it something that you that comes back and creeps into your mind? And how do you deal and cope and mentally compartmentalize that experience? You know, that dreadful act. I think I always put a bit of distance between myself and other people. I felt betrayed in the past. And oddly enough, that was what I felt most after Tiger King was that I had been betrayed by the producers because Mm. that was not at all the program they said they were working on. They said they were doing the blackfish for big cats, not some kind of personal drama. Dumpster fire. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I have always... I've always put a little bit of distance between myself and other people. And I think, you know, it, it, as horrible as all of that is, I don't mean for people to think that I'm a victim or that um, I've had it any harder than anybody else, because I really believe that whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And I think each and every one of those situations is what led me to be able to survive the next one and to be stronger at each juncture going forward. So, the way it impacts me currently is it it scared me to death when my daughter was born. Uh, I never wanted to have children because I never wanted to put anybody in that position, but ended up pregnant. And I was, I've always been so frightened for her safety. And so as soon as she was old enough to even talk about these things, I said, I'll take care of you your entire life as long as you never smoke or drink or get pregnant. I'll cover every expense you ever have in your life if you could just not do those things because I felt like those would be things that would put her at more risk of being around the wrong kind of people. And she now drinks, but she doesn't smoke and she hasn't gotten pregnant. So I'm really happy about that. She's 41 years old. So I think if she doesn't want children, she never has. So I don't think that that's going to be a problem. But um, it really scared me to know that I brought a child into a world where people can be so vicious. No, that's, I, I agree. Thank you for sharing that. It's very uh, open and actually very interesting to hear your perspective as a mother 
uh, and just that maternal instinct that you just naturally have, or, uh, you know, I assume any woman has immediately for their offspring. Now, let's talk animals, because I've discussed some of your personal life, and thank you for sharing that. But animals is, of course, your life, ultimately, where everything lives. Um, I read somewhere, and please do correct me if I'm wrong, that one of, one of your early businesses, you owned some llamas, is that correct? And they mowed the lawn or, you know, cut the grass. Is that true? It is. And it's funny that people have called that llama lawn care, which I never would have thought of, but I love it. It's brilliant. I love it. Oh, I can just imagine. Oh, look at that. Get, not doing any of the hard work as well. You're not pushing the mower. Great. Just bring, bring along the llamas for a couple of hours and off we go. Awesome. That's hilarious. Now, do you remember the first tiger that you ever saw in person? First tiger I saw in person. Um, Quite a difficult question, but I'm <laughs> just wondering because, of course, you, I know of your love of cats in your household as you were growing up and, and how much you uh, enjoyed their company. But I didn't know with big cats uh, when, you're, when you first saw one in person. You know, you're the first. I have done so many interviews. You are the first person to ask me that. So that's why I'm struggling here. Mm. And I think the first time I ever saw a tiger was after my daughter was born. Wow. And she loved going to this little zoo here in Tampa called Lowry Park Zoo because they had sea lions and this big pool. And she loved to watch them play. Now that I know about how these animals end up in zoos, I would never take a child to a zoo, but mm. I didn't know any better back then. So we went to the cool. zoo and they had these old concrete jail cells kind of things for a tiger that they had there. And I remember seeing that poor cat just languishing in that cage, laying up against the bars, bored out of its mind day in and day out while all these kids are running around the zoo screaming. And I just thought, gosh, that is, that's, so wretched to see such a magnificent animal being treated that way. But even though I saw that and I was aware of that, it, it didn't spur me to do something about it. And I think maybe a lot of people are like that because when you talk to people about taking their kids to the zoo, they'll say, yeah, it was really sad. And it's like, but they never did anything about it. And I can understand that because I didn't either. It, I got into it through a totally different route. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. So we start. you started Easy Street in 1992. So by my maths there, that's about 10 or 11 years after you first saw a tiger or after you went to the zoo. So after your daughter was born, what, 1980? Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, so, and that's so 11 years. What was the, the drive then, apart from the passion and, and the desire to change, make a change and an impact in big cats. Where did that, the actual decision come from to start Easy Street? Because it requires all your time, monetary investment and dedication. So where, where were you in your life with Don at that stage to go, right, we are now going to do this? So at this point in, well, actually it went back further than that. It was before Don. It was actually before, I think it was before Jamie's father. Um, I had always thought that I needed to raise a lot of money because what I wanted to do was to save domestic cats and kittens from being killed in shelters due to overpopulation. And back then in the 70s and 80s, I was reading that there were like 
3 million cats a year that were being killed in shelters or three and a half million. And I'm thinking that's going to be expensive. I need to really work hard. And so when I first left home, I was working three jobs at a time and I continued to do that for much of my life. Right now I'm working a full-time job at the sanctuary and I still work full-time for my real estate business. But um, I did that thinking that I was going to save domestic cats. And I spent a lot of time in and out of veterinary offices And what happens is if a native-born bobcat gets hit by a car, the vet, because we have bobcats here, I think, where are you from? Well, I'm I'm from London or in in England. (laughs) I don't think you have any native cats. Uh, Do you know what? I don't believe we do. The Scottish wildcat's probably the closest thing to where you are geographically. But anyway, bobcats are like a little 20-pound cat, and we have them yeah. all over the year. They get hit by cars, shot by hunters, orphaned, and they end up in vets' offices. And vets can fix them up in 30 minutes to an hour, but then you're talking months of rehab for those bones to heal and for them to be fight-ready to get released back to the wild. So I have been doing that since I was 17 years old. And when we were buying those llamas, Don and I were buying llamas for our real estate business because we would buy, like back then, the sanctuary was 40 acres of land that we had. It's now 57. But we would put the llamas out on big properties like that, and they clear about eye level. So we were at this exotic animal auction buying llamas, and a guy came in with a six-month-old bobcat. And she was scared out of her mind and wrapped around his neck, and he said... This was her. He said his wife didn't want her anymore as a pet because she was six months old and she was becoming a bobcat, which is the most vicious, wicked animal on the planet. I love them, but they are just, oh, gosh, they're hard to do. They're quite intelligent, aren't they? Super intelligent. No, I know, but I I remember watching a documentary once. I'm sure bobcats are very, very crafty creatures. They really are. They're so smart and they're so brave. They're, you know, they're so small and they will take on anything. (laughs) They just are not afraid of anything. So I think that's why I love them so much. Anyway, he starts bidding on the cat and I leaned over to him and I said, when that cat grows up, she's going to tear your face off. And he said, I'm a taxidermist. I'm just going to club her in the head in the parking lot so I can make a den decoration out of her. I burst into tears. Don started bidding, and he probably paid more for that bobcat than anybody's ever paid for a bobcat, but we weren't going to let her get killed in the parking lot. And because she was born in captivity, meant she couldn't be released back to the wild, they had declawed her, which meant even if she had been born in the wild, she couldn't hunt, so she couldn't be turned loose, and she came from a different state. And it's illegal to buy a cat in one state or get a cat in one state and release it in another. So she had three strikes against her that she was stuck in a cage for the rest of her life and we brought her home and she was as wretched a pet as I had imagined she would be I mean she was nothing as bad as the wild bobcats I had dealt with but she was bad Mm. and so my husband started calling around to see if he could find a mate for her that she could live with because she was terrorizing our German shepherd and our family and this guy said I'll sell you a kitten but you got to come here in person and so we drove up to La Center, Minnesota. My daughter was 12 at the time. We took a little friend of hers from school. We drove up there in a van. And when we got there, it turned out to be a fur farm. I didn't know people killed cats for their fur. Mm. But as I'm looking around on the inside of this building, and it, there's no sign out front that says fur farm. So when we got there, it was like, you know, this big metal shed. The guy takes us inside. 
the flies in there were so thick. We had to put handkerchiefs over our mouths just to be able to breathe. And it was just row after row after row of bobcats and Canada lynx and Siberian lynx. And he's pulling out all these kittens and showing us the kittens. And I'm looking over in the corner and there's a pile of dead cats that have had just this little piece of belly fur cut off of them. And that's the part they use for coats. So that takes like 20 bobcats to make a single short coat. And it's that white fur with the black spots. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of those animals are just fed back to the existing cats. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I asked the guy if there was this big of a market for these cats as pets. And he said, no, whatever we don't sell as pets, we'll slaughter next year for their fur. And so I burst into tears again. And Don said, how much for every cat here? And we came home with 56 bobcats, Canada wow. lynx, Siberian lynx. And then the next year we went back and got all of the adults. That was 28 cats. And the next year we bought out another fur farm of 22 cats, taking every cat they had along with the agreement that they never kill cats again for their fur. They still raised fox and mink, but not cats. And then people started calling and saying, would you take my lion? Would you take my tiger? And at each one of these junctures, I was so headstrong and so naive (laughs) that I thought I could fix this. I thought, well, we'll just buy all these bobcats and lynx. We'll put them into pet homes and we'll save them. About a year and a half later, those cats all started coming back to me because people were like, this thing grew up to be a bobcat. It's like, yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) Nobody was willing to take care of a bobcat for its whole life. And What was a real turning point for me in figuring out that nobody was going to take care of these cats as pets was I went to an auction. Again, we were buying llamas and I recognized one of the cats that I had raised. And obviously somebody was too ashamed to come back and tell me that this didn't work out. So they just sold the animal at an auction or to somebody who took it to the auction. And so who's buying the animals except for taxidermists? So I realized there was absolutely no nobody that should have these animals in private ownership. And that was in the late 90s that I started working on bills, federal bills, to ban the private possession of these cats. Because it's it never works out well for the animal, never works out well for the owner. They almost always get rid of them by the time they're anywhere from a year and a half to five years old and they become who they are. So there's just no reason to be breeding them for life in cages. Physical and mental well-being are so important and come hand in hand. I'm incredibly proud to be sponsored by the CBD brand, The Good Level, who have well-being at the very forefront of what they do as a company and a brand. They offer CBD oils, balms and jellies, all of which are full spectrum and extracted by a cold press. Their oils are all made with extra virgin olive oil from Kalamata, and that makes them so much tastier than any other that I've tried before. Their balms have a fantastic smell as well, and are great to use on your skin or any pain you're experiencing. And of course, their jellies taste so great for any sweet tooths. They also have a commitment to sustainability, pledging to plant at least 500 trees every year, along with ensuring all their packaging is recyclable. So if you want to check The Good Level out, go to their Instagram page at the.good.level where you can find out all about their products. And if you'd like a discount, feel free to use Headstrong15 at checkout on their website. 
I mean, there's no denying that you're an absolute advocate um, for all your hard work in conservation and preservation of um, big cats and cat welfare. But when you did start, um, you did start breeding as well, didn't you? When did the epiphany come to you then that it was cruel and purely from a selfish profiteering perspective that breeding was inherently wrong? It was that cat, the one that I recognized. Yeah, we never bred lions or tigers. Mm. Uh, The biggest cat that was ever born here, we had, I think, four, no, maybe only two. Um, Either three or four leopards were born here and maybe three or four cougars. And then all of the rest of the cats were like 20 to 40 pound cats, circles, bobcats, ocelots. Sure, sure. And not a whole lot of them. We only bred from about 1996 maybe 1994 to 1997 sure and uh, i I have to talk to you about you know the tragic events of 1997 and talk about the disappearance of don but i specifically want to talk to you about how it was portrayed in tiger king the documentary uh, on netflix readily available to many um but what i want to know is how upsetting was it for you to be revisiting this um, because you, the investigations would have happened years ago, 20 years ago, probably at the time of filming, if, I, if I, my numbers are right. And you're, they're asking questions that are digging up dirt and, and ultimately accusing you, because the way that it's painted puts you in a very um, negative light. Um, so h- how did you feel when they were asking you that and, and talking about it in, in such detail? Well, I I actually asked them, actually, I think it was my husband that asked them why they were asking questions about Don. And they said, well, you know what the guys that you are going up against, the animal exploiters say. And we do, because if you are in the business of speed breeding tigers, ripping their cubs away, pimping them out to anybody who's got 20 bucks in their pocket, and then killing them or putting them into horrible situations as soon as they get to be three or four months old, there's no justification for what you're doing. So when I'm saying that shouldn't be happening, they can't talk about those issues as those issues because there's nothing that they're going to say about that that's going to resonate with the public. And the only thing they've ever been able to do, and when I say they, I'm talking about the people who are still buying and breeding and selling and trading in big cats. The only thing that they have been able to do is to say, well, her husband disappeared, so she must have killed him and fed him to the tigers because, I mean, what else happens when a guy's got tigers? And, you know, they've been saying that stuff since he disappeared because people were really angry. A lot of these people that were in Tiger King and breeding these animals were friends of Don's. And so when he was gone and I started coming out publicly and saying, this is no way to treat these animals and they shouldn't be in cages, they couldn't discuss that on its merits. So the only thing they could do was to try and divert the attention, which was always um, successful because the media loves to talk about a mystery and they love to speculate on whether or not some guy was eaten by tigers. So for them, that's just all fun and games. And I'd been accustomed to people having those conversations. When I say people, I mean the people in that industry. Mm. Nobody had ever taken it Uh, given them any credibility for it because there's no credibility to be had so it that was one of the things that shocked me the most about tiger king was that after people watched tiger king they did such a masterful job of doing things like whenever they would talk about you know 
what happened to Don. While they're talking about it, you're seeing on the screen a tiger chewing the big bone of a... Suggestive. Something. Yeah, so what you were seeing on the screen is registering in your mind, and you're not paying attention to what you're actually hearing. And so if you look through the entire show, which I've documented minute by minute at bigcatrescue.org slash Netflix, um, I go through and say, when you were seeing this on the screen and hearing this and the audio, here is the evidence that I gave the producers that showed that there was no truth at all to that. Like everybody says that Don was a millionaire when I met him. He wasn't a millionaire when I met him. He was a mechanic. And <laughs> they, they talk about how he was so rich and, you know, his family says he was the golden goose and he had the Midas touch. They couldn't figure out how he was making money because he could barely read or write. And I was the person making the money. But because I was raised in a family where the wife was always submissive to the husband, always gave all the credit to the husband, I, I loved that he felt good about having this fabulous real estate business, even though he had very, very little to do with it. Wow. I mean, I'm sure you've been bombarded with questions about this. Uh, and it's got to a point now where it's almost ridiculous that you are there to defend yourself. So I'm going to go through a slightly different tax with you. Can you remember the last thing that Don said to you? Uh, and in the same breath, were you aware? Of course, you were. You were aware of the, you know, what was going on in your relationship, and perhaps the the highs and the lows of what was going on at the time. But the, you know, there are various reports suggesting that he wanted to divorce you. Were you aware of that information as well? He was not wanting a divorce. And all of that has been stated by people who had a reason to want to cause a divorce between us and were mm. trying desperately to cause a divorce because he was suffering from dementia and people were robbing him blind. And I was the one who was protecting him. I was the one who was making sure that they couldn't steal everything that he had. And they wanted me out of the way. Because I think they really believed that he was controlling the money and that they would be able to get it from him if he were left to defend himself. Mm, absolutely. So can you remember the last thing that he said to you? Yeah. Um, he was standing in the doorway that morning and he, <laughs> you, you saw from Tiger King what we had been through the night before with the kittens and going to Albertsons and all that. And he said to tell Kenny, who was working for us at the time, he said, tell Kenny to get the... Um, what do you call it? I don't know if he called the truck by name or not. It was an Aveco, but he told me to get Kenny to get that truck ready for um, him because he was going to Miami early, early, early is what he said the next uh, morning. Yes. And yeah, so um, Kenny had been working on that truck and Don was getting ready to go to Miami, but I didn't think he was going until the end of the month. This was on August the 18th that that happened. He wasn't planning on going to down there till like August the 31st, but he said he was getting it ready. And so I knew a lot of what he was doing was like taking big truckloads of stuff and then driving them down to Miami or having one of his guys drive them down there. They'd load it up onto barges and then take the whole barge into Costa Rica. So it didn't strike me as too weird that he wanted to get the truck down there ahead of time to take all this stuff down there. So that was, you know, my mission in the morning was when Kenny came in was to tell him to do that. Now, of course, all of this was well-documented. Well, I say well-documented. It was in a documentary. Um, how did that opportunity come about then initially? Because you were sold it as a program that was going to be about cats and not about, you know, this, uh, you know, a farcical documentary um, 
kind of with ensuing feuds and whatever. So how, how did the opportunity come around to be asked to do it? Obviously, you own Big Cat Rescue, but how, how did they pitch it? I don't know when they first came to the sanctuary, but I know it was about five years before Tiger King came out. And when they came to us, they said that they were working on the equivalent of a blackfish for big cats. Did mm. you see blackfish? I, you know, it's one of my favorite documentaries. I love it. Okay, so you know the impact it had. Absolutely, it was m- massive. And this is what everybody who came to us, because we had all kinds of people that were working on documentaries come to us for years. And everybody after Blackfish came out said, we're making the Blackfish for big cats. And we're like, if you're going to do that, we will help. And so we've always done this for free for these film crews. We would set aside days and days and days of filming with them because everybody who comes out says, I'm only going to be in your hair for an hour, maybe three hours. They'll come and camp out for three weeks because there's so many cool cats here and great visuals that they get and all of that. So anyway, we spent all of this time with all these different film crews during that same five-year period. And during that period, a lot of a lot of those other films have come to pass. So there was um, Hidden Tiger that was done by Michael Samstead came out. That was a really good one that shows how we're causing the extinction of the tiger in the wild by having all these cats in captivity. And there was The Conservation Game by Mike Weber, which shows how all of this Tiger King craziness started was by these people holding themselves out as conservationists on talk shows, taking cute little cubs on the talk shows like Jack Hanna and Boone Smith and the Irwins and people like that, that we see on TV and believe. And they were saying these animals came from the zoos and that they were going back to the zoos or back to these fabulous sanctuaries when in fact they were being bred by the private sector, going back to these horrible situations or just up and disappearing altogether. And so we were working with all of those different groups during that period of time and were just, we were as shocked as anybody when we saw the the trailer, or not the trailers, but the advertisements for Tiger King because everybody in that industry knows each other and they know what other projects everybody else is working on. And it seems like it's it's funny that in Hollywood, you'll see that where there'll be like five shows that'll come out about one project and then five shows that'll come out about some other topic. And they all come out like that because they all know what everybody's working on. And they're all like, oh, well, he's doing that. I got to do that. So anyway, with all of these people doing this same kind of thing, I figured somebody in this group is going to come out with something that is actually worthwhile. And then we start seeing the advertisements for Tiger King. And we're like, who's doing that show? So we reached out to everybody. We're like, who is behind that? Because everybody that we had talked to had said that Joe Exotic was just, you know, a very small minor piece in these other programs that they were working on, talking about how this whole industry is abusing big cats. It wasn't a character-driven kind of a freak show. And turns out it was the producers that we've been working with who said they were working on a show called Stolen World. And they had actually tried to sell Stolen World to CNN. They had shown me the the pilot that they sent to CNN, and it was what we had been working on. It was them going to all of these places that were abusing animals and showing how abusive it was and the horrible conditions, and then talking about how this is causing the extinction of these animals in the wild. So when they showed me that, I was like, this is great that they're doing this. And then CNN didn't buy it. And that was when they came back out in 2018 and they wanted to film a lot more. And that's when they were asking questions about Don. 
And that was when I or my husband asked, you know, why are you asking questions about Don? And they said, well, you know, these guys say the stuff about you. We just want to hear your side of it. Well, I think what happened was when they couldn't sell the film the way it was, they decided to turn it into the dumpster fire that it was that was sellable and sold it to Netflix. And I've been told, I can't prove this, but I've been told that they sold it for $14 million. So I think they may have had 14 million reasons to completely betray everybody involved in order to make something saleable. Wow. I mean, it's a, it's a whirlwind. And I, I mean, I work in the the TV and film industry, and I, I know full well, um, you know, it's just so easy to if it's something's not sold to try and make some trash and and trash it up and big personalities, a little bit flamboyant and it will sell. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a shame. Was, was there nothing in the contract then? Did you have a contract with them, I assume? I just had a release form, a one-page release form oh. saying that, you know, you can use my my likeness and whatever I say is fine because I've never been betrayed by a film. No, of course. Well, for 30 years, nobody's ever done that to me before. Yeah, absolutely. Now we can talk about Joe exotic for absolute hours, but I'm going to keep it short and sweet. (laughs) We won't, Uh, but we won't, we won't, we won't. Because I've never spoken to him. This this was my question. I wanted to know, have you actually ever met him face to face other than maybe in court? I've been in court with him four times, maybe five never have spoken to him. And so the idea of creating a feud between two people where one person's never even said it. Right. <laughs> how do you do that? I find that part fascinating. It's just this. Do you think it stems from jealousy? From jealousy about what? Well, from when Joe did own his park and obviously Big Cat Rescue as well. Did he see, I know that you, obviously he, you disagreed with what, how he was running his park and the breeding and what he was doing. But do you think he was ultimately jealous of the success that you had with your park? I don't think he was jealous. I don't think any of those people were jealous of me. I think what all of those people and what they said <coughs> was that they wanted to silence me. And the reason they wanted to silence me is because I was the one saying it's not right to be breeding these cats, taking their cubs, pimping them out, and then killing them. That's just not right. And as long as I was out there telling people this was a bad thing to do, I was enemy number one to them. It didn't matter whether I took better care of the animals or had a better place or none of that mattered. What they wanted was to shut me up. Yeah, and... Obviously, Joe is in prison now um, for a number of charges, including many to do with cats, but one obviously to do with yourself, uh, hiring a hitman. Now, in all seriousness, did this shock you about this guy doing that act? Because to me, and from watching that documentary, it's almost by that point, not shocking. It's almost to be expected of him. Do you see what I mean? Well, not only that, they didn't include it in Tiger King, but he had been threatening me for years. And so he had a YouTube channel that mm, yeah. he just on. And you heard Rick Kirkham say that the most people he ever had on the channel was 80 people watching. But that was his, his what do you call it, his international TV show <laughs> that he calls Joe Exotic TV. Um, it was a YouTube channel. And so he was on there like every night saying, we have to silence this woman. We have to shut her up. We have to make her stop talking. And we have to, and he would say, we have to rape her. We have to break her legs. We have to hurt her family. We have to do something to make her stop talking. And he was doing this every single night to a bunch of people who, you know, they're monkey moms and people who own tigers and 
he'd say, she's coming for your cats and she's going to take your cats away. And she wants to have all the cats in the world and she's going to have them all at her place and take them away from you. So we have to stop her. And he had been saying that kind of stuff since, since he started his show, which would have been probably about 2010. And I think he was constantly trying to whip people into a frenzy to kill me and realized later on that he just wasn't able to get anybody to do it for free. And so in 2011, when Louis Theroux from the BBC had come over, he did a show called America's Most Dangerous Pets. And what he realized after Tiger King came out is in the footage that he had shot in 2011, Joe Exotic was already talking about hiring a hitman to kill me back then. He was saying that they were working on it, that these people that he was associated with were trying to do it. And I'd had a number of death threats from these people. Dennis Hill was the first person who threatened to kill me. He said he had a friend in Miami who I'm assuming would be Mario Tabro because he had the reputation of all of that that went on with the cocaine and him thinking he was Scarface and all of that. And then in 2015, a woman called me up and said that Joe had tried to hire her husband to kill me because he was a sharpshooter in the military and she felt like I should know, that I needed to know. And I said, well, I know he's been trying to get people to do it for free, but it's interesting to know that he's trying to pay somebody now. So I turned that over to the FBI and to the local authorities, and they never did anything with it. When Joe started harassing me at the facility at Big Cat Rescue by coming onto the property, and we were finding that uh, somebody was shooting holes in their fences and stuff, I went to the police and tried to get a restraining order. And they said that unless he had struck me at least twice, I couldn't get a restraining order to keep him away from me. And then in 2017, another woman called me and said that Joe Exotic had tried to pay her $3,000 to come here and kill me and that her family was in law enforcement. She thought I needed to know that. And then, of course, everybody who became a whistleblower on the animal issues there would say, do you know Joe's trying to kill you? So, I mean, it was no surprise to me <laughs> that Joe was trying to kill me. But in Tiger King, they make it sound like, you know, it was a big surprise. They went out and hired Alan, Alan Glover and then um, ended up having the confidential, what do they call it, the undercover FBI agent. I can't think what they call that, but poses a hitman who wasn't really. And what the public didn't see because they didn't put it in Tiger King, even though the producers were at the hearing and they know this to be true. They didn't put in there that the reason Joe was convicted in less than four hours was not because anybody set him up or, you know, did anything like Joe's been saying, but rather the words that came out of Joe's own mouth where he was caught on tape talking to the undercover FBI agent saying, just go up to her in a parking lot, shoot her in the head or cap her in the head and leave her body there because we want to make sure her family finds it so that they'll stop coming after us. And so, you know, it was that kind of thing that convicted him, not any kind of elaborate setup. What I find hilarious is that he ran for president with such little intelligence to uh, openly say these things about you. I mean, I, 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 I enjoy that you are capable of finding the humour in it now. However, because I suppose you have to just laugh at it because it's utterly, it is barbaric and almost unbelievable. But just, yeah, anyway. Um, what I ultimately want to talk about with this podcast, obviously, as well, is mental health. So the aftermath of Tiger King must have been a very difficult time for you. 
yes, we, you've used the word a couple of times already. You are yourself very headstrong. But regardless of that, you are receiving threats day and night, 24-7, from all sorts of random people. You already had a social media presence with Big Cat Rescue, which I have no doubt was taken over by trolls and people abusing you and indeed Big Cat Rescue. How did you cope? What were, what were these emotions like? Uh, and, and what have you done to, to get over that and get through that? I really, I feel like... I felt the most betrayal from the producers. I would expect this from the animal abusers to do the kinds of things that they did and to say the kinds of things that they did. And I know just from the, the things that I heard myself saying in Tiger King, where they would juxtaposition a conversation and then make it look like I was answering that conversation with what I said next, which what I said next had nothing to do with that. So like the most um, obvious in that was where they were saying something to the effect of they've got Don's daughters on there and they're talking about how much they miss their father and everything. And they want to do a memorial. And they said, what would you say to these people? Well, the, answer that they got was they had asked me what would you say to Joe Exotic and Doc Antle and these other people and not what I would have said to Don's daughters and so I would never have been hateful never was hateful during the process after his disappearance I dealt with them much more generously than Don had and I was kind to them even up after the time that Tiger King came out, I found a few more pictures of their father that I thought maybe they would want. And even after seeing the way that I feel like they were manipulated in Tiger King to make it look like, I mean, some of the things they said, of course, were pretty cruel, but I think they were probably manipulated into it because I know how manipulative the producers had been with me. They'd asked me the same question like 20 different times, trying to get me to answer it in a different way or a different soundbite that they could use. And I suspect they did the same thing to them. But um, to deal with the public backlash from that, my phone, <laughs> you know, my husband and I sat there and binge watched it like everybody else did because we couldn't believe what we were seeing. And we, we sat there at the end of it and said, well, that was a missed opportunity because we're thinking, you know, this whole thing was going to protect big cats and nothing about Tiger King was going to do that. And so we were just sitting there thinking that, oh, that was too bad. Not really feeling like, all of the horrible things that they had said about me or anything were such a big deal because we knew they weren't true. And then my phone started ringing and it rang every two minutes around the clock for months. I could not use my phone for anything. And I'm the person on call in the state of Florida. If a bobcat gets hit by a car, I'll get up at two o'clock in the morning, drive to the scene, rescue the bobcat, take it to a vet, sit up with it all night. And I can't take those calls because my phone is going off every two minutes with people screaming obscenities at me and telling me how much they hate me. And the main things they were hating me for was having cats in cages. And I couldn't believe people didn't understand that I'm trying to end the practice of people having cats in cages. They just did not get that from Tiger King. And yet that's my whole shtick and has been for 20 years. So how on earth people came away with that attitude that I was, uh, you know, as bad as these people that were breeding these cats and exploiting them. I mean, looking back at the, that clever ed editing, and I had to watch it seven times to be like, you know, because I'm trying to 
differentiate what I know to be true versus what mm. they're painting on the screen. And so that's why I had to watch it so many times of like, how are people getting this message <laughs> so bad wrong? And then it was like, yeah, I can see how people could get that. But you consider all of the things that they did to try and make people have that kind of an attitude. And I think they weaponized all of the freaking crazies out there and made this world a much more dangerous place for me than it ever was before, because used to, I only had to worry about the animal exploiters, mostly big cat exploiters. I didn't have to worry about everybody that's, you know, a few bricks short of a load thinking that somehow they're going to set things right and get Joe out of jail if they just kill me. And so I think they've made it a much worse place for me. But to answer your question as far as how I feel about that, I think what hurt me the most is how my family had to deal with that. And the people who I work with here at the sanctuary, how they had to deal with that. Because from my perspective, I know these things are true and it doesn't matter. I mean, I can tell you, you have blue hair all day long. It's not going to make your hair blue and it's not going to make you worry that your hair is blue. And so for people to say those things about me doesn't affect me in any way. But when somebody says something like that about your mother or your sister or your beloved, then you feel like you have to protect that person. You have to defend that person. And you're always on the defense. Um, and I think that's been very, very difficult for them to have to deal with that. Yeah. So I take it then from what you're saying, you didn't necessarily actually have any dark thoughts or, or any concern about the way that the public behaved because it's water off a duck's back. Yeah. I, my only concern is that somebody be, you know, crazy enough to try and hurt me and end up hurting my family instead. My daughter and I look a lot alike. And for somebody to mistake her for me or to, um, you know, think that they were harming me in some way and actually harming somebody around me, if somebody were to come in onto the property and just start shooting into the crowd, hoping to kill me. How many of the visitors or the volunteers or the staff would they take out and something like that? And we had people threatening to do that all the time. They were threatening then to burn the place down. They had two different and three different Facebook groups that were stormed the, the gates of Big Cat Rescue. And mostly those just turned out to be a whole bunch of people that wanted to take selfies in front of the Big Cat Rescue sign because of the infamy of the show. But still, when people are saying storm Big Cat Rescue and you see hundreds or thousands of people that say they're showing up for that, then we've got to get the police out there and surround the place and be on high alert. And we had drones coming into the property. And so I had never in a million years even thought about it until I heard in Tiger King that Joe Exotic's husband was saying Joe was talking about dropping grenades over the property. And it's like, oh, for crying out loud, how do you protect yourself from something like that? Mm. That's crazy. Absolutely, absolutely crazy. Now, the first interview, because you, you did refuse interviews for a while but um, when it first came out, I imagine purely because I know what journalists can be like as well, and they'll bombard you with the same question over and over again, much like the producers. Um, and my phone keeps ringing. I can't yeah, take the call. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But the first interview that you did say yes to was technically hosted by a previous guest on this podcast, Archie Manners, um, <laughs> which was um, fortunately you were actually um, painted in a very good light in that. They weren't uh, malicious at all. It was just very clever and very entertaining. I hope you thought the same now as well. I thought it was so funny. Yeah. That both, I mean, that it was clever what they did. Mm. And it was done, I think, I don't think they were being mean-spirited about it at all. No, not at all. 
And they let me talk for like an hour about the cat issues. So this is what I wanted the public to really learn is that if we don't stop this cub petting and private ownership right now, we're going to lose the tiger in the wild in the next five years. And we've got to do this now. And so they let me talk about that for all that time. And they had like 7 million views. So it reached a huge audience. So it was like, yeah, this is all good in my book. Yeah, it was massive reach. And yeah, it really blew up. And as you say, you got to talk about the thing that you spend every single day doing and are an advocate for and spend, spend your life fulfilling with passion. Um, how do you approach each day now then? You say that you are, um, you are, you are you yourself headstrong. So h- how do you remain headstrong? What is it? Because you had all these events, you have trolls and you still have people probably being plonkers calling you and leaving comments in various places that are rather rude. But how do you remain headstrong? Are you familiar with the Enneagram? No, I'm not. I discovered that, I don't know, maybe five, six years ago. It's um, like personality testings. You've probably heard of Myers-Briggs and different personality tests. Mm. So it's a personality test, and they divide people into nine different personality types. And what the testing will do is show you, I mean, everybody is always a combination of all nine types, but we're not a single type. But there is always one that is like your underlying motivation for who you are. And in mine, I'm an eight. And an eight is what they call the challenger or the protector. And that has just always been who I am. I was always the one in grade school when other kids were being picked on. I was the person who would stand up for them. If there was some inequity in the school system, I was the one leading the protest to try and change it and make it right. And finding out that these animals were being abused, then I'm the person who's going to jump into the fray and say, we're going to change this. We're going to make this thing right for these animals. We're going to protect these animals that don't have a voice. And so that's just my personality type. And you can always work on your personality. (laughs) You can always make yourself a little bit different, maybe. But I don't think you can ever change what totally motivates you from inside. And so from inside, I am just driven to make sure that the underdog is protected and always will be, I think. That's really that's really interesting, actually. I think I need to do that, do a test on and find out what my personality is. It'd be quite interesting and useful. I'm sorry. It'd be very useful to probably know. Yeah, I did it with all of our staff because if you know what a person's underlying motivation is, then you know how to speak to them. Mm. So if somebody's underlying motivation, like I have one person on my team who is a three and her underlying motivation is to be successful. And so I know that whenever I give her a task, I have to give her a task and say, and here's how you can succeed at this task. That's what this will look like when you succeed. Mm. And so she will do it to try and succeed. Whereas weirdly, and I find this really bizarre, you know, I have like 80 volunteers on site that take care of cats. And then we have probably 200 people that take care of all of our social sites. But of the 80 people who are here on site, I would say probably 90% of them are a personality type one. And the personality type one is the perfectionist. And it's because everything we do here at the sanctuary has to be done exactly right to be safe and to keep the cats well cared for. And so the people who survive in this world are the ones who are going to make sure everything's perfect. <laughs> and so we have a huge number of people that are perfectionists. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's really, really interesting. Who have you got there? Lucifer. He's my daughter's like 20-some-odd-year-old 
cat. He sounds like a pterodactyl. I know. I was, I was wondering what I think it would be. <laughs> um, so as you say, of course, you still run Big Cat Rescue. Uh, and with your personality uh, underlying kind of trait, it is to continue to, to help these animals and get them out of cages that are far too small for them. You turned 60 this year. Uh, you can't, or maybe you can, run Big Cat Rescue forever. What is your um, long-term plan with it? Is there ever a play time where you think that you'll sell it or will you always constantly be involved? Well, I'd never sell it. Yeah. Um, well, you know what I, I mean. I will this through until I die. Yeah. But my goal is that it doesn't have to exist. And if we can get that, and I shouldn't say with, if when we get the federal bill passed that bans the cub petting and phases out private ownership, that's going to take care of 95% of the big cat abuse. And it's going to stop all of these hundreds of cubs ending up in horrible situations every year. Most of the cats who are currently in private ownership, they'll die out in the next five years because people don't know how to take care of them. In the zoos, I think zoos are going to have to remake themselves in the in the future and become location-based um, virtual reality type facilities where the animals are actually being tracked in the wild through remote controlled internet. Like a, like a safari, I guess. Yeah. Um, because that's the only way we really learn about animals is to see them in the wild doing what they do. Sitting an animal in a cage, it does two things that are really terrible. One is the terrible thing it does to the animal. And two, to teach our children that it's okay to treat some other sentient being that way just because that amuses us. What kind of a horrible message have we been teaching our kids? We need to stop that right now. So anyway, I think the whole problem will die out in the next few years. And my daughter, fortunately really loves the rehab work that we do. And that's probably always going to be there for native cats to send them back to the wild. So we'll continue to do that work. But I'm really thinking that this whole issue of big cats in cages is something that will very soon be a thing of the past. Well, exactly. Once that is passed, um, then things will start to change, won't they? And so that's a massive stepping stone for you, um, but for, for big cats in general. A question that I need to ask is, what can we do to continue the conversation for this? Um, because is it awareness? Is it monetary? What, what is it that we can do to continue this? People in the US, if you have a listenership here, if they go to mm -hmm. bigcatact.com, if they put in their name and address, it will send an email and a tweet to their members of Congress asking them to support the bill. And it will actually even call if they want, they can choose these three different options. They can call, which is more powerful. And it will call both their representative and their senators, and they can leave a message on the phone if they want to do it after hours so that they leave it on an answering machine. It won't be scary for them. But for people who aren't in the U.S., the biggest thing they can do is whenever they see images of people touching big cats, petting cubs, having big cats in their cars or in their houses, showing off with them, is to call people out on it and say, what are you doing? Where is that cat's mother? Why isn't that cat in the wild? Why are you treating this cat like a pet, making other people want to have them as pets? And when you start calling people out on it, they're going to stop doing it. They only do it because they get attention for it, good attention. If they start getting nothing but negative attention, they're going to stop doing it. I was so thrilled this morning. There was some actress I'd never heard of before, but apparently she's really hot and famous. And so she had gone someplace and posed with cheetahs. 
And these cheetahs were in a zoo that she wasn't, I don't even think she was actually touching them. I think it was just saying that they were in a cage and she was by the cage and she posted it to her social sites and her people, her fans just were all over her saying, that is not cool. Those animals don't belong in cages. And I was like, yes, yes. Finally, the, the tide has turned and we are seeing people that are just not willing to accept this way of treating animals. So it's coming. There we go. Exactly. It is coming. And I'm excited for when that does get passed. Now, I have two final questions for you. The first one is, if I came to Florida, can I come hang out on Big Cat Rescue with you? Unfortunately, no. We've been closed to the public since March 15th of last year. And then Tiger King came out on March 20th. So five days later, we had that craziness to deal with. But the cats can catch and die from COVID. So until COVID is a long gone thing, there's no chance of us opening back up. Oh, I'll postpone my trip then. (laughs) Okay, my final question, Carol, is, and I'm interested to know what you say, um, saying that you are, what does the word headstrong mean to you? Well, when I saw Headstrong was the name of your podcast, I thought this must be four and about eights. <laughs> Enneagram eights, because that is what we are. We're just, we're so determined. And I think the reason that we're so determined is we feel like we're doing it for somebody else. I don't think there's anything that would motivate an eight to do something for themselves. But if they feel like they are protecting somebody else who can't protect themselves, then they're all in. Carol, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. I appreciate you being so generous with your time Uh, and very insightful and um, entertaining as well. Thank you. Well, I wish you all the best with all your future endeavours and I hope to speak to you soon. It's great to have teamed up with The Good Level, a British CBD company who share a similar ethos to that of Headstrong. The Good Level co-founders, Joe and Johnny, believe in CBD as it's helped them and their families with their physical and mental well-being. Whether that's using their balms to recover from physical exercise or using their oils to manage stress and anxiety or to get a better night's sleep, The Good Level has well-being at the very centre of their brand. As we've partnered up with them for this season, you can get a 15% discount off all their orders using Headstrong15 at checkout. And if you're not sure about CBD yet, no worries. Joe and Johnny are always happy to chat and answer all your questions. You can contact them via their website or check out their Instagram at the.good.level. And that's Headstrong15 at checkout. And that concludes season six of Headstrong. A huge, huge thank you to Carol Baskin for joining me on this episode and indeed closing the series it really means a lot and i hope that you enjoyed this series and indeed this episode we've had some brilliant guests and if you've missed out on any episodes be sure to go subscribe and flick through the catalog keep an eye out on socials for any news on another season which will be season seven which is pretty phenomenal and i'm so proud to have got this far I couldn't do it without you, the listener. So please do leave a rating, a review, pass the podcast to any family and friends. I will be back. Thank you so much for listening.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 